Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. This week, Brett Ahrens joins Cosmo on 321 Go. Then we have an interview with Major Marcus Jugenheimer and Carissa Brown from Salvation Army. In a two minutes with Tom, Tom is joined by Joe Albiani. First up, 321 Go. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. Joining me here on 321 Go is Brett Ahrens, the ROI columnist for Market Watch. Brett, it's great to have you back here on uh, 321 Go. Great to be back with you, Cosmo. I think this is your first appearance uh, with us since uh, we went all remote, or have you been on... I, I know you've been in our studio a number of times. Yeah, this is my first, the first time uh, remote, first time post-pandemic, post-coronavirus. Yes, mid-pandemic. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's good to have you. Um, so let's talk about um, an interesting topic. You had a good column, uh, um, actually fresh right now on Market Watch this week, about nursing homes and COVID-19 and the AARP, American Association of Retired Persons, arguably one of the most powerful lobbying organizations in America. Um, you say there's a debacle at work with regard to AARP and uh, the nursing home establishment. Yeah, the, AA, the AARP, apparently they don't call themselves uh, the American Association of Retired People anymore. Um, the AARP came out with a really, really interesting takedown uh, the other day, which I just wrote about, um, uh, of nursing homes. And it's everybody from the managers, the private sector, to uh, stupid laws, government regulators, everything. I mean, the the essential aspect of this is that nursing homes account for 0.4% of the American population and 26% of the COVID deaths. Um, we knew we, all of us knew, including the people in power, knew as early as the middle of March that this is a disease that is almost uniquely lethal to the elderly and people with certain pre-existing conditions. Obviously, there are some deaths among people who are not elderly and who do not have certain pre-existing conditions, but they are actually incredibly rare. The overwhelming majority, the overwhelming majority of the deaths are among the elderly and among people with certain pre-existing conditions. That was true uh, when Italy, as you remember, went through this first. They had that crisis in late February, early March, and the Italian government did an analysis back then, and it said basically it's old people and it's people who are sick. Um, and yet, here we are nine months later, and we have spectacularly failed to protect the sick and elderly in the specific institutions designed to house and protect the sick and the elderly. I personally am very angry that it's we- a, It's a mistake. It's a mistake we keep making too. It, yeah. Okay, it's one thing if we thought maybe we, we didn't see it coming in March or April, yeah. or, but yeah. I mean, we see it coming now. Yeah, well, we, the, part of the point is we did see it coming in March and April. One of the many reasons why I am angry with the entire political class here in America and overseas uh, over these lockdowns. One of the reasons is that we have diverted our attention 
so that we are devoting an enormous amount of time, energy, and resources to protecting people who are really not at risk. And as then we find we haven't spent enough time protecting the people who are at risk. Look, um, I was looking at the numbers the other day. There are, you know, people say, oh, well, I know a young person who died, or I know a middle-aged person who died who wasn't sick. Fine. In, um, in America, every day before COVID, every day, 250 people under the age of 30 die. That was in 2017. 5% of men do not make it to the age of 40. Some young people die every day long before COVID. So when you say, oh, there are, you know, a story of a young person who died, you know, yeah, compared to what, the 250 others young people who died, under 40s who died that yesterday that you didn't mention. When you include those numbers, you realize that this is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly a crisis facing the elderly and people who have certain pre-existing conditions, including asthma, um, diabetes, and so on. The numbers are, are staggering and unambiguous. And I speak as someone who used to build spreadsheets and do data analysis before I went into journalism. The numbers are absolutely stick out like a sore thumb. Um, and it's, you know, it's like standing next to the Empire State Building saying, you know, I can't find any tall buildings around here. It just, you can't miss it. And what we have done is we have all these, all this attention on the general population, on, you know, keeping kids safe, making sure people in their 20s don't go to work and people in their 20s with no pre-existing conditions are wearing masks. Look, some of these things um, are fine. I have always been a supporter of the masks policy. I was wearing a mask even, before, even when the CDC was lying and saying there was, um, you didn't need a mask. I was, I was wearing a mask because wearing a mask costs nothing. It hurts nobody. It's a very simple, cheap, and easy way of doing it. But the problem is we have devoted all of this energy all of this energy to trying to police the entire country and telling healthy people to stay at home. And then we have taken our eye off the ball of the people who are really in the firing line. 0.4% of the population, 26% of the deaths. Yeah, That's a even it's a, a tremendous amount of energy, time, effort, thinking, yep. strategizing resources ought to be going to those people. That's exactly right. It is as if we had it an invasion of pedophiles into the country, and we were, we were locking everybody up regardless of age to keep them safe. You do not need to keep me safe from pedophiles. I'm 52 years old. They're not interested in me. And you do not need... I, it's not that people who are middle-aged aren't at some risk um, or don't matter. It's that the risk is minuscule, especially given that, as I said, 250 people under 30, 400 people under 40 die in America every day. This is pre-COVID. Um, 5% of men don't make it to the age of 40. So, you know, some people die young, have always died young, and continue to die. The number of deaths, I looked at New York, New York City has very good numbers, and they've had, I think, 20,000 COVID deaths. And I think the number of healthy people under 65 who had died, were, it was like 100 or 150. I mean, it was, it was in, the, in the context of 20,000, it was minuscule. If you can do everything, if you can keep everyone safe, then all right, that's a conversation you can have about how far you are willing to go to keep people, quote, safe. I mean, I point out, you know, we don't ban cars, which kill people, or alcohol, which kills people, or unhealthy foods, which kill people, or cigarettes, which kill people. So we could theoretically um, 
do enormous numbers of things to, quote, keep people safe. But that's a separate issue. The key issue here is we have an illness that is overwhelmingly dangerous to two clear groups of people, elderly people and people with certain pre-existing conditions. And we were unable to protect them, which tells me we did not have tons of surplus capacity to start going around making sure that, you know, coffee shops in the North End, you know, weren't, people weren't going to the bathroom without their mask on. I mean, it's, it's, you know, this, this um, uh, distraction of our energy. And it has been a debacle. Uh, the AARP, as I said, did this fascinating takedown. It is very, very interesting because it is bipartisan. There are plenty of critiques of the industry and the private sector. Uh, apparently, death rates in private sector nursing homes uh, have been much higher, although I don't know whether there are confounding factors. Um, but also some fascinating insights into the failures of the law and regulations, including the fact that Medicaid and Medicare and other things, the, their structure has basically driven lots of people into nursing homes who shouldn't be in nursing homes. That yeah. Medicaid is much more likely to pay to support support uh, a, a very frail, very old person if they're in a nursing home than if they're still at home, which is just insane. So there are there's plenty of blame to go around. But what has frustrated me is that there has been a determination throughout all this to talk about this crisis as if it is a general crisis and we are all at risk. And the reality is the risks have been focused on some very narrow groups and we have let them down. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great point. It's absolutely true. Hey, let's pivot. Um, same broad topic, COVID-19, different policy related issue. And that is how employers are, um, you know, how employers are reacting or, or uh, you know, uh, behaving with regard to certain benefits uh, in um, during this pandemic. You had a piece just the other day that said 10% of all employers are actually ending 401k matches and and using COVID, COVID-19 as essentially uh, of the reason. Yeah, this is interesting. It was actually, you had to tease it out of the data. I don't know who does these surveys and who analyzes them, but there was this Survey that was talking about how many employers say they're going to bring back their company match next year. But when I went through the data, it was fascinating. What it meant was that 10% of employers have, quote, suspended their 401k match this year uh, as a result of COVID and have not yet, or had not, as of I think it was September, October, had not yet restored it. Some or many. Uh, say or claim that they will restore it next year. We will have to hold them to that. I will believe it when I see it. I have seen this movie too many times. You know, it's the old, the old trick. One of the old tricks in 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 corporate uh, spin and malfeasance is, you know, you do something like this, you suspend it, and say, oh, we're going to bring it back next year, and then next year you don't bring it back. You don't cancel it. You say, oh, we're suspending it, and then you don't bring it back. And then when people say, oh, you're not bringing it back, oh, well, that was last year's news. So I will believe it when I see it. Uh, at the moment, 10% of employers have suspended their company match. Now, what's interesting about this is, look, there has obviously been a catastrophic business crisis for many companies as a result of these lockdowns. And I very specifically blame the lockdowns, not the pandemic. Uh, people say, oh, it's the pandemic. No, it's the lockdowns. Um, and I am sure that some companies that have suspended their matches 
uh, did so in reasonable faith because they just can't afford it, because they are in deep trouble. Um, fair enough. However, it is, it is worth watching these companies to see how they treat people in the C-suite. Uh, I have seen this before, companies saying they couldn't afford their generous pensions, and then the, then the proxy statement comes out a year later, and the CEO got another $5 million. And you think, are you kidding me? So if, a, if your employer has suspended your 401k match, um, let me know at MarketWatch because I want to write about them. If they don't bring it back, we're going to have a look at what the, the, the deal that the CEO and the, the other um, honchos are getting. And if they're sharing the pain, fair enough. If they're not, that needs to be uh, talked about. Um, I agree. Uh, nothing like uh, keeping an eye on executive suite compensation, uh, to, to under, especially in challenging times. You and I did this a lot when we were working together at the Boston Herald. Indeed, we did, and it's a, and it's a, it's a it's a it's a useful way of understanding a understanding a company's corporate culture. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, it's very important, and it it is not um, necessarily something that points in one political direction or another. I sometimes get people saying, oh, you know, you're always attacking rich people. It's like, no, it's, um, you know, people should be compensated. The labor is worthy of the hire. But it is, it is interesting, particularly when you see people saying, oh, we haven't got money to pay these benefits. And then you see the absolutely egregious amounts of money being handed out uh, to people in the, in the boardroom. I remember years ago going on CNBC when Bob Nardelli was fired from Home Depot uh, he'd done a terrible job. Uh, the stock had been down. They've just had a terrible run for about five years. And he got $240 million or whatever it was he walked away with. I remember I was on CNBC and I said, look, I said, the stockholders got ripped off. I said, I'd have run the company badly for half of that. <laughs> I could have run it in the ground for $100 million. You didn't have to pay someone $240 million. So pay for, pay for performance, but also I think people who are the best paid need to share the pain when there is pain to be shared. Indeed. Um, all right, we're talking to Brett Aaron from Market Watch, the ROI columnist. Uh, just to wrap it up here, it is the Christmas season, uh, the holiday season, and uh, the hot game this year is the PS5, the, you know, the PlayStation 5, Sony's big uh, new game system. Impossible game system, almost impossible to get. Actually, impossible to get at this point. There's not enough production uh, to fulfill uh, all of the demand for this and uh, all that. But you know. There is another another product that is almost almost as scarce right now because of some supply chain and business finance issues. That the elf on the shelf. <laughs> that um, this is not a joke. The the, the Lumistella company. Uh, I think it's a, a mother and daughter. It, the, the elf on the shelf has become such a major part of the holiday season tradition, but it's relatively recent. It's like fifteen years. Most Christmas traditions are like. A hundred years or more old. Well, fifteen well, years old, and it's everywhere. Everyone's got this thing. Yeah. Historians, uh, people who study his history professionally, uh, will tell you that there is a very uh, important concept called invented traditions. And most of the so-called traditions that we think go back to time immemorial are recent inventions. In fact, I was reading something just the other day about how Mariah Carey's song has now become, you know, this kind of. It, it's the new white Christmas. It's everywhere. And of course, it's only, I mean, I remember when it first came out. So uh, the Elf on the Shelf must be the, the new, um, must be another invented tradition. It's not one that has uh, come to my household. I will say on, on Sony, 
it generally, you know, it generally emerges in, in a household that has small kids and it's fun. Yep. And the thing, it moves every night for 24 nights and, um, and, and, and the kids find it in the morning and, it, and, it, and you can't touch it, you know, and, and you can't, you know, or else, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the elf gets mad. And of course, adults have adopted this to have their own fun. So if you go, you know, you can, you can find all kinds of hashtag, uh, uh, photos on Instagram and Twitter of the elf doing all kinds of funny adult in a funny adult situations. In some <laughs> cases, profanely adult situations. Right. Um, but the, <laughs> the companies essentially had difficulty accessing enough um, enough business credit, enough uh, credit to cover shipments in the event that a, a, a major retailer goes under right you, you right. Have, to, have to you've got to protect against um uh that by obtaining credit insurance uh and if, and if you can't get the credit insurance you're taking a huge risk saying yeah i'm going to ship uh we're going to ship uh ten thousand units to uh brenton cosmos warehouse in battle creek michigan and and you know what we're not going to pay the invoice so good luck that, that's the issue, and, and, and that's and that's and that's why there's a shortage. One of the one right. of the reasons, tremendous demand also, uh, and and supply chain disruptions because of COVID nineteen. Well, I I look forward to hearing uh, to seeing the press release from the Department of Justice, uh, which you know tries to put someone in jail for hoarding of uh, elves on the shelf, uh, stockpiling them for gouging. They did this with a guy who imported masks. Nine months ago, it was one of the most surreal press releases I've ever seen. This guy imported masks from overseas, and they they basically try and put him in jail because he's trying to charge five dollars for a mask, and it cost him two fifty just to import them. Um, so maybe the maybe the Department of Justice can can get involved in, in the in the warehouses that are now. Um, what about counterfeit elves? I mean, can't China just flood the U.S. market with counterfeit elves? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's uh, obviously a copyright issue, and uh, obviously at this point, I think it's probably a bit too late in the year. Um, it is. It is. So. All right. Just, just kidding. Brett Aaron's Mark Watch. Thanks so much for joining us on 321Go. Great to be here. All right. That's going to do it for another edition of our program, recorded remotely in various locations across the Commonwealth and the U.S. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Okay, joining us now on OA on Air is Major Marcus Jugenheimer, General Secretary of the Salvation Army Massachusetts Division, and Carlisa Brown, Director of Advancement for the Massachusetts Salvation Army or the Salvation Army Massachusetts Division. Major Marcus and Carlisa, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for, Thank having, you for having us. us. Excellent. So um, we are experiencing, we're at the tail end, but still quite in the middle uh, of uh, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic, but at the tail end of 2020 and experiencing a, a, a year like none other uh, in, uh, in at least a century. And I know that for an organization that serves those most in need, um, you must have a, a very unique perspective on the level of need and how people are being impacted across Massachusetts, uh, certainly uh, physically, health-wise, uh, economically, financially, 
and 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 how all those factors exacerbate uh, conditions for people who might be uh, living on the margins or, or or struggling with homelessness or struggling with um, uh, with hunger or other issues. Um, can you can you try to give us a picture of how severe uh, and, and how significant the level of need is in Massachusetts? Uh, in this very, very unusual year? Well, certainly. Um, the Salvation Army's mission is to to meet the most basic needs of um, individuals and families. And from the beginning of March, when uh, the, the COVID pandemic really came to Massachusetts, the Salvation Army in Massachusetts quickly pivoted our means of, of delivery service um, putting a priority on on the finding the most safe way to deliver the the needed services so that both those coming for help and those providing the help can maintain um, their their health and safety and we quickly saw the numbers that uh, we serve increase dramatically in in many communities the amount of people coming for for food um, multiplied tenfold because of the pandemic and we, you know, have seen throughout these months um, what we call the cascading consequences of COVID, from initially responding to to those those families that had been impacted through being somebody being infected by the virus, and then um, it broadening further and further to those affected by the virus through loss of income, the uh, increasing unemployment across the Commonwealth, and that that was coupled with the increased food insecurity. And so the Salvation Army's immediate emphasis was on helping to address the need of food insecurity. Um, since March, serving over 13 million meals across the Commonwealth to assist with that need. Wow. Can you put um, some, you know, percentages or dollar figures around it? I mean, I, I've got to imagine you know, it's it's 50, 75, maybe even uh, a, a double level of need this year. Oh, absolutely. Even at this time of the year, um, we're looking at about 155% increase in need. And that has been evidenced in the different services that we offer across the Commonwealth. And right now for the greater Boston area, we're preparing to do our Christmas castle distribution next week. And we found that uh, that the registration for that event uh, filled up quicker than it ever has in the past. Wow! Now, Carlisa, you're 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 dealing with this, but, but kind of like with with a, with a, with, a, with one arm behind your back because the ability to collect donations in the traditional way, in this very, quite frankly, iconic way, at the Red Kettles, has been out of necessity severely severely hampered. I, absolutely. I mean, it, it has been, you know, with this pandemic, one arm tied behind your back and being able to reach uh, donors and and ask for uh, donations. But, you know, I, I, I will say that uh, 
people are aware of of the impact of what's happening and they have been so gracious in making donations i think our message has been getting out there in terms of the work of the salvation army and how we are in communities and we're helping those in need and so people have risen up to that to to help meet that need with their generous donations so you know i would say that you know donations have increased but we're continually uh, out there and, and talking about the work and talking about the increase uh, of the impact of this pandemic and what it's doing um, to, to families and to individuals who are, are basically living day to day. Now, um, I mentioned the red kettle campaign and I know, and, and to the best or, you know, the best that you can, that 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 continues. You've got some. You've got retail partners and others who are um, generously provide space and uh, uh, permission to, for red kettles to be manned outside uh, their stores. But, but I know those numbers are down, and, and and foot traffic is is inevitably going to be down. So you so you've repositioned or at least made some steps. You've un, you've uh, unveiled the keep the bells ringing campaign. Uh, you've got an online kettle. Um, uh, Major Marcus and Carly said, so just talk about how that's going and what you've done to, to, to sort of adjust and, uh, and reposition for this uh, very challenging time. Sure. Well, well, oh, oh, do you want to start, Major? Well, we've seen um, decrease in our contributions at the Kettles, and that's due to many uh, factors, as already been mentioned. You know, while many of our past partners have uh, graciously allowed us to collect again this year, Others, for reasons we certainly understand with health concerns, have opted uh, not to have us there this year. But due to the decrease in foot traffic, the, the um, you know, less people utilizing cash in our society today, we, right now our numbers are right around 63% down in kettle collections across the, the Commonwealth. And as a result, um, we're looking for other means of... of for, you know, providing people other means to give in ways that uh, would certainly um, not have any safety concerns. And Carlisa will go ahead and talk about some of what we're doing um, to provide opportunities for d- digital giving this year. Absolutely. So there's a number of things that we, we stepped up on with the virtual kettle online that you see and, and a number of cores have launched a, a their own individual campaigns in regards to that. But what we've been doing uh, in terms of a, a digital platform is reaching out through our social media platforms to talk about, you know, what's happening at the Red Cuddles with the uh, the loss of donations because we're unable to stand uh, in certain places. And so, you know, I have to say that that impact has increased. Um, uh, I want to say our foot traffic on social media uh, and recognition of that. We've been using our text to give. Uh, Ring the bells to 41444 is our text to give. Uh, and people have been uh going on that to, to, to make donations, which we're really happy about. Um, in addition, I'll just mention, uh, last week we had our Giving Tuesday and, you know, I have to say that that was pretty phenomenal for this year in comparison to the last year in terms of the number of gifts that we have received on Giving Tuesday. That's great. We're talking to Carly Brown, Chief Advancement Officer for the Salvation Army of Massachusetts and, and Major Marcus Jugenheimer, <clears throat> General Secretary. You know, 
annual events, uh, especially in a community like Boston, where um, the nonprofit sector is so significant, uh, are, are a critical part of, of raising funds and re-engaging with your best and your most dedicated supporters. And, 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 uh, and talking about the mission, the, the Salvation Army Annual Luncheon, uh, I have been incredibly fortunate uh, for many years to be able to attend. Uh, it, it is a remarkable uh, midday event right around this time uh, of December. And, and unfortunately this year, it, it, it hasn't been possible. But you did have, and as we sit here uh, recording uh, on Thursday, December 10th, just, just the other night, just last evening, a, a very successful virtual event uh, wh where you were able to accomplish a lot of what you normally do with the annual luncheon. Uh, Carlisa, can you talk about that? Sure. So our annual luncheon, which went virtual, uh, keep the bells ringing. And that I have to say was a, was a tremendous success for us. And uh, like so many organizations who would normally have an in-person event and, 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 recognizing that, you know, things have changed. Uh, so our virtual event for Keep the Bells Ringing, we had uh, special VIP appearances, such as the governor, uh, Baker, uh, give, giving a message, Mayor Marty Walsh giving a message, the police commissioner, Gross, uh, giving a message, as well as singing uh, at the end of his message. Uh, the whole point of this event was also telling the stories of service in the communities, as well as the stories of partnership of those uh, organizations and individuals uh, who have partnered with us uh, in the work that we do in communities. And with that, I'm, I'm happy to say that we had over 109 uh, devices that signed in. And some of these people who were signed in to this virtual event had watch parties uh, that were watching this event. So we know that it was over uh, 100 and so uh, folks uh, able to view our Keep the Bells Ringing event. That's terrific. Um, Major, just as we um, get ready to close out, I wanna make sure we remind people how they can give and also, if I'm someone and I and I just on a, on a, on an average year typically would give a certain amount of money. Say say you could count on me for fifty dollars between the kettle and uh, and maybe a, a, an envelope that I get mailed to my home. If I give just how much more this year, uh, if everyone gave just a certain a, a little percentage more, how closer could you get to the goal of of, of trying to make up what has to be a significant shortfall? Well, I think the important factor there is that uh, we've seen many who have moved from our donor list to our service recipient list. And so not only then um, is there the, the increased expenses to, to meet that need, but also the decreased income. And so for those who are able to give this year, who are in a financial position to support, we would encourage you, um, you know, if, if you could give 10% more, that will help us to be able to help that many more people, um, not only at the hol holiday time, but also well into 2021, as we anticipate that uh, this pandemic will be with us um, for, for a number of months to come. And so again, we, we can encourage people to give. You can go to SalvationArmyMA.org and, uh, and give a one-time gift there or a sustaining gift of $25 a month. Or um, there's also the, the text to give opportunity. And uh, Carlisa will give you that one more time. 
Or Absolutely. Give you a text to ring the bells 41444. Ring the bells 41444. Excellent. Major Marcus, Carlisa Brown, the Salvation Army, Massachusetts Division. Merry Christmas and thank you so much for joining us. Merry Christmas to you as well. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Have a great day. I'm thrilled to be with Joe Elviani today for Two Minutes with Tom. Joe, we've worked together and have been friends and associates and uh, and uh, collaborators on any number of things over the years. Have you ever seen a crazier year than 2020? No, Tom, the, the assaults on democracy in terms of what's going on and the the tragedy of the coronavirus have certainly made 2020 a, you know a remarkable year in so many different ways and so we have a president of the united states who has played more golf than he has utterances about anything impacting the american public yeah and, and these last few weeks are even you know more crazy because we've had people die we're about ready to reach 300,000 deaths in this country. And the president of the United States (laughs) has not even referred to this issue as he continues to not deny the fact that Joe Biden has won this election. And while that's going on, a case has been filed by the attorney general of the state of Texas to see if we can't upend the election and the results of the election this past November, the presidential election, joined by... I think 15 other attorneys general from across the country and 100 members of the House of Representatives in Washington who have joined an amicus suit to see that that can happen in the states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, I I guess Nevada and... uh, No, no, Georgia and Michigan. Georgia and Michigan, yeah. Yeah, this is... is Unbelievable, unbelievable. Of all the Republicans in the House of Representatives, who have joined and filed an amicus brief in this lawsuit, which the Supreme Court has to, you know, consider whether it's even going to to render an opinion in in the next couple of days. I mean, if the Supreme Court tries to decide this case, in fact, it will be deciding the election. And overturning, you know, the the, the hopes of 150 million people, 70 million of which voted for Trump. 80 million of which voted for Joe Biden. It's just an incredible state of affairs. That and and the fact that we've still got this stalemate in the Congress on the stimulus package, despite the fact that yesterday, 853,000 more Americans filed for unemployment insurance. Just an incredible thing. Not a word has been said. No, No closer to a stimulus package than we need to be. No leadership coming from the White House. Leadership of one kind coming from the the House of Representatives of a very different sort from the U.S. Senate Um, and and the inability to put people together to make something happen, not only to help the unemployed, but to help businesses that are going to go under if people aren't paying attention, if the government doesn't come to its rescue. But the most serious, the most serious condition and the most serious thing that's going on is the filing of the suit because it really just kind of turns over the intent of the Constitution of the United States Absolutely. and the roles to be played. 
Absolutely. by the president, by the Supreme Court, and 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 and, and by you know, just three new members of that Supreme Court who could just overturn a democracy. I mean, I, I don't believe that they'll do it. I don't believe that they'll even consider this. Um, and, and I don't believe, it, you know, this is the kind of thing that Justice Roberts really needs to have a unanimous court on, uh, basically denying even consideration of it. That is the only way that there can be the the kind of refusal uh, to even consider this kind of assault on our democratic processes. It's a, um, it's a sad state of affairs, I'll tell you that. I, uh, I, I, I know that, you know, you know we, we've been talking about it earlier than, than before we started this program, and I, I'm just afraid that the American public are not focusing in on this type of thing, on this type of foolishness, uh, on this type of activity. And those that are, there aren't enough speaking out about it. To be perfectly honest with you, no, I, I think we have two kinds of denials going on right now in the United States, Tom. One is a denial of the results of this election by a large segment of the population, and the other denial is the reality of what's going on in terms of the coronavirus. Just, uh, I, I, you know, and, and just, just consider this we are days from reaching 300,000 deaths in this country from the coronavirus. Here in Massachusetts, we've had over 50,000 COVID-19 cases in the state since the Friday after Thanksgiving, only two weeks ago, and alarming increases in hospitalizations. And we haven't, we're just now experiencing the real impacts of the Thanksgiving travel. Now, look, there are positive things, obviously. The FDA panel yesterday approving emergency use of the Pfizer vaccine and initial distribution just days away. And I think next week we can probably expect the submission of, of the Moderna vaccine. Uh, but, but now we've got reports that the federal government has acquired too little of the, the vaccine to meet the current level of COVID-19 infections and what's necessary even for the first phase of inoculations. The global yeah. report this morning that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines alone will not be enough to immunize our more than 5 million residents by the middle of next year. It seems to me it's just further evidence that the federal authorities early on ignored or worse denied the severity of this pandemic. Well, you've got, you've got the leadership within the White House theoretically leading the country, not talking about not talking about anything. They're not talking about, about COVID, not talking about the vaccines, not talking about the roles that the federal government has or has not played. Thinks that uh, opening up, opening up all of our all of our businesses, all of our schools, all of our all of our everyday operations, and everything we do to make life consistent, um, without understanding what the impact of all that crowding coming together, without social distancing, without wearing masks has on the effect of, of, of our people. You said to me two weeks before, I believe it was you that said it to me, two weeks before Thanksgiving, the average caseload in Massachusetts was at around 2,000. That by after a week after or 10 days after Thanksgiving, it would be double. And by 10 days after uh, Christmas, it would be double again, eight to 9,000 cases a day. Um, I, I heard Dr. Fauci yesterday morning say that this is the worst pandemic in the history of the United States, the worst pandemic 
in the history of the United States. And not enough people are paying attention to it because the leadership in our White House aren't, isn't paying attention to it. You know, I think the sad thing about this entire history of this pandemic, Tom, is that the White House has made every element of this a partisan issue. Wear masks and you're on one side. Don't wear masks and you're on the other side. Yeah. Open businesses and you're for us. Close businesses or at least modify the way businesses operate and you're on the other side. Play football, you're with us. If you don't play football, you're against us. It's, it's, right. it's unbelievable. Exactly. Look, we're, we've got some real, we're going to have more vaccines coming. Right behind Pfizer and Moderna, there will be AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, and there will be more. And, you know, but even if we can overcome the transportation and storage and dosing and other logistics around the vaccines and get sufficient quantities from whatever source, there's still a question of how do we get enough reluctant Americans, particularly in those communities that are right now disproportionately impacted by the virus, to take the vaccines? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's going to be a big issue going forward. And until we get enough people to take it, we're not going to be able to catch up on the effects of the vaccine right now. Well, the seeds of doubt are being planted on a, on a morning talk show this morning former head of the CDC said about Pfizer and the vaccine, its, its vaccine, that not enough is known, even though it's been approved, not enough is known about the side effects or how long it will wear on to prevent, you know, to, to keep the immunity. Um, there are too many unanswered questions. I don't think that we rushed the, the, the need to have this approved, but he said there are still many unanswered questions. Again, planting the seed in the American place, American uh, mind, that says, I have doubts. It forces men and women, people, to say, I have doubts as to whether I should take it because not enough is known about it. And I'm very concerned about it. Yes, more advertising has to be done, more public relations has to be done, more communicating about the need to have vaccines taken by people needs to be done as well. Otherwise, it's going to take us yet another whole year to get through this pandemic and back to some degree of normalcy. Yeah, and I think one other challenge is trying to keep people patient enough and having them continue to try to follow safety guidelines for a few yeah. more months. Because again, that's the only way that the vaccines will be able to get out there and get into people's arms so that we'll be able to catch up to the extent of this infection right now. Joe Alviani is uh, with O'Neill and Associates. He's been a, a, a trusted and a, and, a, and a much needed advisor in the healthcare area. Uh, I, I, I must say, Joe, that uh, beyond our friendship, I've really enjoyed having an opportunity to work with you at O'Neill and Associates. You've been terrific. You have your own podcast on healthcare, and you might want to mention that, but talk about it for a few seconds to give people a view as to what you're doing on the podcast and who you're interviewing and talking to. Yeah, the, the podcast is called OA on Healthcare. Um, we talk to leaders uh, in the healthcare community and those organizations that actually face the challenges uh, of the coronavirus uh, over the course of this pandemic. Um, please listen to it. It's on SoundCloud and on the OA, the O'Neill and Associates uh, website. Um, we uh, we basically broadcast about uh, once a month. Uh, please do listen if you have a chance. 
Joe, I'm going to say that the two minutes with Tom turned into 15 minutes with Joe. Um, <laughs> it, it's been a joy. I want to do it again with you. And we don't have to wait till the end of each week to do it with two minutes with Tom. I just want more people to hear your points of view on healthcare, healthcare delivery, and what's going on in America. Well, thank you, Tom. Good, Joe. Thanks very much. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.